I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of Harburg. Once I built a railroad, I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower up to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Now you may be seated. This week we watched American Gods Season 2, Episode 6, Donar the Great. So what did you think? The first time that I watched this, I thought it was a little thin, a little gimmicky. Um, but like each time that I went back to it, I actually discovered there's like a lot going on. And uh, overall, I love like the lost style meditation that we get on Odin and all of like the extra helping of Ian McShane, which is always going to make me happy that happens in this episode. So I'm excited to talk about it. What did you think? I agree. I didn't love it at first, but the more I thought about it while I was preparing for this episode, the more I really came to appreciate the structure and the storytelling. I also really like that we gave Wednesday some real emotional vulnerability at the end of the episode, and I thought it was fun to get another con job with him and Shadow. Uh, But musicals aren't usually my thing, so I was kind of a bit mad on uh, the, like, several extended numbers that we got. Mm -hmm. But before we get into it, let's talk about this week's creators. This episode was written by... Adria Lang, who's also written for Sons of Anarchy and Helix. This episode was directed by Rachel Talley, who has directed movies and TV like Tank Girl, Ally McBeal, and Sherlock. Let's recap what happened this week. Wednesday dreams of when he was the owner of a burlesque theater, but is awakened by shadow. The two take Grungnir to the center of dwarven power, a shopping mall to mend the runes. Dvalin, the runesmith, is too weak to help and requires the most powerful artifact in the mall, Lou Reed's jacket. Wednesday recalls the burlesque days when his son Donar helped him to gather worship, which inspires him to work with Shadow to steal the jacket. Shadow asks about Wednesday's past and reminds him that the more he tried to control his son, and his paramour, Columbia, the more he drove them away. Until he pushed his son so completely that Donar destroyed himself, and Columbia made an alliance with the new gods. Wednesday and Shadow deliver the jacket to Dwalin, who re-inscribes the runes. In Blackbriar, Mr. World needs more power from new media while he tracks the escalating war between his pantheon and Mr. Wednesday's. He senses that Odin has revived the power of his magic spear and promises that new media will have all the tech she needs very soon. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so I thought we could start out just by stepping back a little bit and talking a little bit about how the flashback and the present time stories connect and reflect on each other. Okay, so here's my take on it. You can let me know if you agree or disagree. 
So I think both of the stories, of course, are about the spear. Um, the past story is about how it got broken, and the present story is about getting it repaired. And so that's kind of just like a straightforward content connection. And then on a more thematic level, I think they're both about Wednesday's relentless pursuit of worship, because that's what drove him and Donar to fight, um, which broke the spear and led to Donar's suicide. Um, and it's also what's really driving him uh, to get the spear fixed and fight his current war against the new gods. And I think it really highlights uh, both the like physical dangerousness and emotional weight or toll that that takes and sort of like the bad consequences from the past and how that kind of reflects on the riskiness of their current endeavor. I hadn't thought about that at all, but they are uh, both about the spear, right? Because like that old story, that's how it, that's the climax, right? Like this is the explanation for how that spear got broken, but it's like symbolic of the way that Wednesday was broken in the past, you know, like emotionally broken by the loss of uh, his son and the kind of breakup of the worship situation that he had going on with him and Anansi like th that was the end of it like it literally shattered there yeah and I think it really shows how like Wednesday's character has been super consistent like he's always super manipulative he's always just using everybody around him and lying to them mm -hmm. um to get them to do what he wants like if he was that much of a shithead to his own son of course he's like not gonna hesitate to be really manipulative and abusive towards Shadow. He, he says something at the end, like... What happened to Donna? Sacrifice is the only noble act. As gods, it's our sustenance and currency. I regret nothing. But it's clear to me that, like, that is exactly the opposite of what he means. He is sad that he drove... Donar slash Thor away in, into suicide, but he's like buried it. And now he's like, I've already ruined everything that matters to me. And now I'm, j I'm just going to use people to survive. Like nothing else matters except my survival anymore. Yeah. And like those types of contradictions, like saying one thing, but like the text clearly revealing that the truth is something else. Like that's what makes really good storytelling. Yeah. And he's kind of forced to live this way by his nature. Like he needs worship. There's nothing he can do about that, but he doesn't need to destroy all of his relationships to get it. That's the choice that he's making. Even And he's kind of convinced himself that he has no choice about that, mm -hmm. but it does take like an emotional toll. And like there are different ways that you can give characters vulnerability, right? And up until this point, really the only thing that's made Wednesday vulnerable is that he needs worship and he's not getting it, mm -hmm. you know? And so that makes us feel for him a little bit. It also makes him desperate and is like really motivating him. But I think this is the first time that we've seen him have an emotional stake in something. Yeah, and, and to get a glimpse of like his interiority. Like mm -hmm. you said, we could understand his motivations, but we couldn't understand the toll that it was taking on him, you know, as a person. Um, and if you want to hear more about vulnerability and characters, listen to How Story Works by Lonnie Diane Rich and Infomercial. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that now 
shadow is uh, Wednesday's vulnerability in the way that Donar was his vulnerability then. Oh. Like he says, you remind me of my son. But is that is that really a one-to-one or is he saying that to Shadow because Shadow has this whole like who's my daddy issue going on to manipulate him? That is such a good question. And I feel like we might get there by the end, but we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Like right now, I think Shadow is still somewhat disposable to Wednesday in a way that Donar was not. Mm. And that whole thing, too, of Donar killing himself, like to me, put a whole new light on all the different warnings that people have been giving to Shadow. I just hadn't put the pieces together to think about that. But like, obviously, now that we know this history, like, all of the other characters have also known this history. And so, yeah, when they're warning Shadow, like, they've been thinking about this. Right. Like, when media tells him all the way back in, like, episode three, like, Don't fight gravity, Shadow. I've been at this a while. Not as long as some, but I've seen things. Guys like you end up a suicide every time. I'm trying to help you. Keep your neck out of the belt. This is directly related to that. Yeah. Although the show presents this as like suicide is the one death that gods can't come back from. But like what makes Thor's suicide with the shotgun different than Odin sacrificing himself on the world tree? Is it like a new old split or something? Like guns aren't ancient enough? Or... <laughs> I think I could imagine, you know, like a situation where Thor kind of says, like, I dedicate this death to my oblivion to destroy myself completely and then sacrifices himself to be destroyed completely to like the idea of oblivion or something like that. And then like he's gone because Odin, that's what Odin does. He like he ritually dedicates his death to himself. I see. So it's not necessarily just suicide, but it's like the specific intent of the suicide. Yeah. Okay. I, I buy that. That's like sufficient for me. Connected to this whole like, is Donar shadow, is shadow Donar like in, in his mind. Donar has a girlfriend that Wednesday is like, that's messing up my plan mm-hmm. and and shadow has laura and like do, do you see a connection there at oh all? no i did not but that is great it's like these fucking women who he can't control you know his son or like pseudo son figure are somewhat devoted to to the point where it like threatens his control over them mm-hmm. yeah i love that comparison history is like repeating itself I, and I really like I love how that works like I said earlier like the whole lost thing I was really feeling those lost vibes so do you think we'll see Columbia again now that they've like cast an actress it's a good question is she in the book or is she a new character no okay no she's not in the book but I think that Columbia is proto media I think this is media's coming to america story oh i mean because clearly columbia's doing all right with worship like she plays at the beginning of so many movies 
Well, that's the deal the new gods make, right? Yeah, yeah, no. Like Vulcan bullets. She's kind of like, know. well, I see her less as like a precursor to new media and more like someone like Bilquis. She's harnessing technology to get her worship, but at her heart is like a more older and ancient god. I mean, clearly not as ancient as Bilquis, who's like goes back to before Common Era. But, you know, 300 years or 400 years isn't something to sneeze at. Well, like Columbia is kind of a in the Roman style of gods, but clearly like a little bit of a propaganda thing Mm -hmm. that Americans made up in pre-revolutionary times. But um, so to me, like when Thor kills himself, you can see behind him the famous like poster uh, of Rosie the Riveter. And to me, I'm like, oh, that's Columbia right there oh oh you think he had that poster to remind him of her exactly and he was like now she's a new god and i'm alone i don't have my father i don't have like nobody loves me i'm out i'm done that's so sad i thought they did a really good job of exploring the american mythology that actually surrounds her because she does like in the same way that thor has, you know, like, all of this Nordic mythology and ideas and themes associated with him. Like, so does Columbia. And, you know, they talk explicitly about manifest destiny. And, like, she's totally motivated by this desire to go west, um, which speaks not just to the point that she's going to end up as, like, the icon of a motion picture company, but also (laughs) the idea that white people coming to this continent was predestined and that there's Mm. you know a drive to conquer the whole continent and just to always be like pushing west more and more yeah and she's like her whole thing is like i don't know the actress did a really good job of like conveying all the longing and like pathos and sadness Mm -hmm. um and she had like a great singing voice she did a really good job i thought of doing that early Hollywood acting thing from from that era. I thought that was great. Her accent work was so good. Yeah. Like she had that very early 20th century sound and cadence um, and mm-hmm. accent, but it it felt fairly natural. It didn't feel like put on. We should go to California now, tonight. Oh, Donnie, are you serious? It'll be the adventure of a lifetime. We'll hop on a bus and wake up on the open road. Just meet me at the backstage door after the last show. I pledge myself to you, Columbia. And I you, Donna. Where, like, and, like, Ian McShane just, like, has a ton of gravitas with him anyway. Um, And Anansi is always anachronistic whenever he shows up. Technical Boy was the only one who felt a little out of place to me. Like, I love Mm -hmm. Bruce Langley as Technical Boy most of the time, but he didn't feel quite like he was blending into his surroundings as much as the other people. Yeah, what did you think of that? Like, is this the first meeting between 
Wednesday and Technical Boy or what? Yeah, I don't know. And I wonder too, like how old he is. Like, was he, mm-hmm. was it Telegraphs or? But there is a thing that <laughs> Mr. World says like at the end of the episode. Oh, so like how much ahead? Cause I'm gonna need more tech support if you wanna live stream before the launch date. And you shall have it, the fellows in the valley assure me that our new friend will be ready in time. The wind stirs the branches in the trees. The storm is coming. And so to me, I'm like, does that mean that they're rebooting the technical boy? Like, are we going to get this made me wonder, like, can you do a hard reboot on the technical boy where he doesn't remember what he was before, but he looks exactly the same? And this is like a different this is version one. And we had like version six or something like that. And will he be just like a little bit less shitty? I don't know. I'm glad that we got to see him again. Um, and part of me was like, oh, they just didn't want to say goodbye to him. So and they were like, great <laughs> opportunity to keep, oh, yeah. keep Bruce around. Um, no, I, I saw that as like a contract thing. Like I signed up for <laughs> seven episodes. I got to be here. I guess I just wish his mannerisms had been a little bit different. Because like obviously technology has changed a lot and the times have changed a lot. And we've seen the way that the different gods have had to... Um, adapt and change over time. I wish there was something of his like affect or like the surface veneer that was a little bit more different, even if he was like still fundamentally the same shitty person on the at the core. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So do you think that that like connects to the modern story in any way? Like technical boy being there is this like he says that, you know, Ma Bell will always be there. Does that have anything to do with uh, shopping malls and their endurance? Not specifically, just generally in the sense that like the whole theme of this, right, is that it's a changing world and that nothing is permanent. You know, everything has its moment in the sun and then its time passes. Yeah, it's the same thing, right? Like phones and phone conglomerates and then shopping malls. And right, I mean, to a certain extent, telecom communications are still shitty behemoth corporations ruling our society and exploiting people. They're just now doing it on cell phone plans. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, speaking of which, I think that's kind of the other theme of this episode, right? That they use the song that we quoted at the beginning, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Once I built a railroad made it run made it race against time once i built it so it's written in 1930 um by ey yip harburg uh and the composer jay gorney and was part of a 1932 musical review called americana Uh, the melody is based on a russian jewish lullaby that gorney's mother sang to him as a child Um, And it became kind of an anthem of the Great Depression. Uh, It was considered by Republicans to be anti-capitalist propaganda. 
uh, <laughs> and there were attempts made to ban it from radio. But uh, the song was eventually recorded by Bing Crosby uh, and actually became quite popular. <laughs> the anti-capitalist propaganda sold a lot of records, you're saying? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> anyway, um, I think it's interesting that they uh, they included this song that's really about the failure of capitalism and about how the relentless pursuit of money and power like harms people in real important ways and how that kind of uh, reflects back on the way that Wednesday is relentlessly pursuing his worship um, and harming people in the process. Oh, that's so smart. I love it. (laughs) And you know that like um, capitalism is supposed to be super efficient and like, you know, the free market is like the best way to organize everything. Like, we'll just figure it out by like natural selection. Capitalism is actually like horribly inefficient and shopping malls are a great example of that. The 80s and 90s, we built these like huge retail palaces, invested all of this money and and physical materials into these structures. And now because of the type of retail experiences that people want, now shopping malls are like very much dead places. And they're just like property tax revenue sinks on like huge blights if they're, you know, not being taken care of properly. There is some kind of like interesting innovation that's going on. I know there's like a shopping mall uh, in Austin, Texas, that uh, Austin Community College just like bought it and turned it into one of their community college campuses. Huh. Um, That's cool. Yeah. Capitalism is not just like super efficient and and it does leave these like weird relics behind as, as like times and tastes move on. It's funny that they built a shopping mall on the center of Dwarven Power in Illinois. (laughs) I can't, I don't even know what that is in world building terms. I don't know if there are a lot of caverns in Illinois. (laughs) There's like, maybe Kentucky. Kentucky has a lot of caves. It did feel like, you know, like from the Lord of the Rings, like the Mines of Moria or something. (laughs) You have these huge pillars and stuff. No, and it is, it's true. Like the structure of a shopping mall is kind of similar to the structure of a cave system because you have all of these like narrow Mm -hmm. passages that like branch off and then kind of open up into like a big majestic room that's like many stories tall and i can tell you as someone who professionally delivers things there's also like back passages that are very (laughs) cave-like that you have to go to to deliver stuff to everybody so what you're saying here is like there's kind of like an economy of worship, right? That that Odin is after um, in this burlesque theater. And w- when I was watching it, I I had this thought of in the past, Mr. Wednesday was more legitimate. Oh yeah, I mean that's on a, a much bigger scale than anything he's doing now. Exactly, like a burlesque is like um, you know kind of grimy, whatever, but it's not a con man thing like he's doing now in the mall right the bishop game he calls it and that comes directly from the book which uh, i thought was interesting and was kind of like the main thing that was kind of calling out to me through this uh, whole episode there's nothing in the book about um wednesday running a burlesque uh during the depression or anything like that like they have a long conversation in the book on christmas day in a diner wednesday in shadow 
about Wednesday's past. And that conversation is kind of like where all of the content for this episode comes from. Mm, Okay. And so he talks about how times have changed so much and how you can't really do the same kind of con that you used to do in the good old days. And the Bishop game is his personal favorite con, but it's impossible now. So it's weird to me that they did it (laughs) successfully. Is it what makes it impossible is that like in the medieval times or whatever, bishops had more power? I think he's actually talking about doing it in the Depression. Oh. Um, But yeah, he's like basically the reason that this that this con works is because the person that you're conning the like the store clerk in this case they believe that you are a trustworthy person and then they experience this whole thing of like oh no i was tricked they never think that they're being tricked again Mm -hmm. basically like people are too suspicious now like nobody nobody trusts institutions anymore like they used to so you can't uh play off of i see people's trust in that way modern people are too cynical basically my one question about the heist is, where did those two security guards come from, and where did they go afterwards? I thought that too. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like weird. That's a weird little plot hole. Like I didn't know. Yeah, who are those? People? And I was that's so weird. proud of myself because I never noticed those things. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine, you yeah, know. Whatever. They were just materialized golems of whatever. The whole heist was fun to see, and it's a cool Easter egg from the book. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, like, complaining that they did it. As soon as I saw him in the bishop outfit, I was like, no, they're doing the bishop game? Like, I knew exactly what was happening. Yeah, and Shadow is using the same uh, identity that he used during their bank con in Chicago. I love that continuity. Yeah. Yeah. A1 Security Services. Can I speak to A. Haddock? Uh, This is Andy Haddock. I, I liked the whole thing there, but then it was, it had me like thinking of the book and then thinking of like its relationship to like actual Norse mythology and Odin. I love the way that um, Gaiman like adapts in the book, the character of Odin into Mr. Wednesday and what a person like that would be in modern times and in the setting of America. And I think like he really nails who Odin is as a person mm-hmm. in that characterization. And I think that the show is also doing a really good job where like the actual worshipers in Nordic culture did not like look up to Odin as like, this is an awesome person that I want to be like the way that, you know, the worshipers of Jesus do. He's just like a, a dangerous person, basically like a mafia boss or something powerful and to like be respected. But not to be trusted or worked with unless you have no other choice. I love the way that this whole episode kind of complicates his character and makes him less likable in the way that like he meets with the Nazis. I really love how they bring that in to the 1920s plot. Yeah, he's like an actual Nazi collaborator. <laughs> it makes sense on a certain level to me. I don't know what you thought of it because... He comes from like a Germanic pantheon. I like that they show that the symbol predates the Nazi adoption of it. It has this certain meaning for him 
beyond that. But also he's like willing to look the other way on the fact that they're Nazis if he's like getting something out of it. Given the very pointed commentary that we've gotten from the show on like the current political situation, it's hard to read this as anything but like calling out conservatives and the alt-right and Fox News for basically like coddling white nationalists and like literal neo-Nazis because they happen to be aligned on certain values and are willing to look the other way. Oh, yeah. They cultivate them as a voter base yeah. and then try to say like, oh, well, we don't believe what they believe. They just happen to vote for us. Yeah. But there's also a modern movement um, called uh, neo-paganism that is moving European countries away from Christianity and back to their pagan roots. And in Scandinavian countries, that means like a going back to a worship of the Nordic pantheon and Odin and Thor. Um, but the people who seem to be the most interested in that are also white supremacists. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I also like in this uh, episode, like we get the spear getting back its 18 runes. And that is a clear reference uh, to me for the Arminen runes, the 18 mystical runes in Germanic occultism, which was also like a Nazi thing. Which is like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of yeah. uh, explores that like Nazi obsession with the occult in a somewhat humorous way. Even the flanged cross, like you said, is uh, that's still a symbol that's used in like India and Buddhist countries and stuff um, as a good luck charm. Mm -hmm. Like it has no association with white supremacy there. Um, and so uh, the Arminen runes are the runes that are on Odin's spear that give it its power, the spear Grungnir. And so to, to dive into the mythology of Grungnir really quickly, you might be familiar from the MCU with uh, Thor's hammer, like he throws it and then it comes back to him, which by the way, in Norse mythology, that's not a thing. It's not a boomerang hammer? No, he has special gloves and that's why it comes back. It's not the hammer, but whatever. Oh, um, I see. But uh, Odin's spear, on the other hand, he doesn't need gloves for because uh, he's the daddy and the spear is cooler. It never misses its target. Also, if you hold the spear and you make a promise, you can never break that promise. Like, even if you want to, even if you try to. Um, so Grungnir is pretty cool and it has like those 18 charms to it. And 18 is a significant number because uh, nine in Norse mythology is like a number that indicates that things are magical. And so it is twice nine, you know, it is double magical. It's very magical. But in in the mythology, just like here in the show, uh, Odin would not have known how to uh, work with the runes. Like he would not have been able to discover the runes. The people, the Scandinavian people who identified with the Norse pantheon looked at like the Romans and their culture as like a total mystery. Like how do people build things made out of stone to be so big? How do they mass produce armor and coins at the scale that they do? How do they make roads that are so flat and so durable? How do they make concrete? Like all of it is magical. None of it is 
actually possible by like human ken. They just didn't believe in their own capacity to do these things. And so in the Norse stories, the gods never like Thor doesn't make his own hammer. He has to go to the dwarves who are not a part of their entire situation they like have their own thing going on the dwarves do and they don't even like the gods they're like oh you people jesus what what do you what what do you want what <laughs> and they're, oh, okay i'll do it but um give me a mountain of gold or whatever and in this case lou reed's jacket right um right i really liked how it stayed consistent with that like odin can't fix his uh his own problem and then he tricks them which they always do in the Norse stories. They never like deal fairly with anybody. They always if they if they can't trick the person that they're trying to pay, like you told the story about Slipnir, where they cheated the guy who was building the wall. If they can't pull that off, they'll cheat somebody else to pay for their thing. So I see. Well, so they didn't cheat the dwarves. They gave the dwarves the real jacket, but they cheated the pawn shop guy yeah. to get the jacket. And Shadow even says, like, we have the money, let's just buy the jacket. And Wednesday's like, absolutely not. I'm not spending any money on fucking dwarves. Are you kidding me? I love that that comes from actual Norse mythology. <laughs> it's a thing. Uh, speaking of Thor, I really like the depiction of him uh, in this episode because Thor, out of all of the Norse gods, is the one that is the closest to humans, the one that is the nicest to humans. Like Odin doesn't deal fairly with people. He will always exploit them. But Thor is kind of so simple that he's just honest. He's like sincere in the exact same way that he is in the episode. Did you like Thor in the episode or did you um, find him annoying? I didn't find him annoying. He seemed a little flat. Mm -hmm. But again, I wasn't sure like how much of that was intentional or not. Because, I mean, my only real previous exposure to him is in the MCU. Um, but it seems like he's always just kind of a little bit dumb and flat. Yeah. The best Thor stories are like the ones where basically Loki has done something and Thor punches him in the face and everybody's like, you have no evidence that he did anything wrong. And Loki's like, actually, I did do it. It's He's right. <laughs> I know that like the show is not quite up at his pay grade, but... Part of me just really wished that they had gotten Chris Hemsworth for one episode. <laughs> it would have been such an amazing crossover. <laughs> that would have been weird. In the book, they they have this conversation about Wednesday's past. And then Shadow says, yeah, all those cons sound really great. But the thing that they all have in common is that it takes two people to pull them off. Did you used to have a partner? And he's like, mm. yeah, I did. But uh, he killed himself a long time ago. And then later on, you find out that Thor's been dead, you know, for a long time. And you kind of put those pieces together. So the show is making it more explicit what happened. I think that's a good decision. Yeah. And it also draws that direct connection to Shadow, right? Do you think that Shadow is like Thor? Like he says, you do remind me of him. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they're that similar. I think Wednesday's reading that into them based on... The fact that his relationship with each of them is somewhat similar, but other than like the way that they relate to Wednesday and that they're both vaguely human shaped <laughs> man people. Well, they're both really like, big too. That is true. Uh, they both look very nice while covered in shiny oil. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I think it's more to do with, like, the role that they play in their relationships with other people, like, with their female partners and with Odin, rather than, like, some, like, core part of their personality. Do you think that he believes that he will destroy Shadow? Is, or is he trying to get it right this time? Um, I think both. I think he thinks that that's a strong possibility that he will destroy him, but is going to try not to at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a sacrifice that he's willing to make. And if he makes it, he won't regret it. That is, in Norse mythology, Odin's whole thing. Like, he finds out about the prophecy of Ragnarok. Like, he discovers that all of the gods are going to die and everything that he's built is going to be destroyed. From that point on, he does everything in his power to avoid that fate, which, you know, the way that it always does in ancient stories like this is exactly what causes Ragnarok to happen. There's this confrontation that is inevitable. And Mr. Wednesday is doing everything that he can, including like exploiting his friends and destroying his relationships in order to survive that conflict. Which is totally like how Odin is in Norse mythology. And he's like very manic. He is the manic energy of humanity to like fight against your inevitable death. The way that you will just do anything you can to survive when the moment That makes sense. Yeah. There's also, if we're just kind of like riffing on Norse mythology, um, there's a reference to the Odin sleep at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> right. And like pretending to be dead. I appreciated that. <laughs> I think he says in the first episode, like, I can sleep anywhere. It's one of my talents. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to like wrap up the these connections between the story and, and uh, Norse mythology, um, the spear is important in the story of Odin in that he made, like you said earlier, he made a sacrifice of himself to himself on the world tree, Yggdrasil, uh, when he hung himself from it and stabbed himself in the side with this same spear. The spear is pretty important in terms of like Odin's power. So it makes sense that we've spent like basically most of the season trying to get him and his spear like reunited and then... Um back in good repair yeah and when he does like alarm bells go off right literally with mr uh -huh. world i feel like we should also point out um a continuity error that someone else pointed out to us oh yeah kelly uh glazebrook girl on, on twitter. twitter um yeah so she mentioned that like as the episodes were edited wednesday gets the seedling for the world tree but he gets it before he actually meets up with them. It's so weird. I don't know why we didn't notice that, but it, it's obviously true. Yeah, because he pees on it and then he's like, I got to go do something. And Shadow's like, you don't want me to come with you? And he's like, no, you really messed up everything with money. So why don't you stay here? And that's when he goes to get the spear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's definitely a problem. But they are also um, invoking Yggdrasil in the story like that seems to be what that thing is. Right. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely the world tree. Although all of this spear stuff is unique to the show and is not a part of the book. 
Um, oh, really? Mm-hmm. The spear does not show up in the book at all. It kind of does. There's there's a whole thing. The So there's a world tree in the book. Um, it's nothing like this. And they do have to get a spear uh, for Odin. but um, And it's related to the world tree. But it's very late in the book. And so, like, I keep watching this whole thing and I'm like is any of this going to count like at the end of this whole thing is the spear just not going to work or are they going to have to do that? Or are they just not going to do that stuff from the book? And this is replacing it. I see. Right. Cause it's like, if it's different than the book, you kind of know in order to make it matter, it, the ending has to be fundamentally different. Yeah. Or this is replacing it. Well, there's, there's one point in this episode where Mr. World is talking about like the war has begun and like uh the war begins and nobody sees it the storm lowers and nobody knows it my truck driver in denver killed by a rubber gripped claw-headed hammer in his home, a community of nine anchorites, dead from carbon monoxide poisoning. A lobster tank smashed in an Atlanta seafood restaurant. Single attacks may light the spark. There's like a, a whole passage that he's basically just quoting from the book. Um, And so I'm like, huh, are we, is this moving to like the end game battle before we get like any of the middle stuff from the book, which I'm fine with, but like, it's just really interesting to me the way that they're doing the adaptation because they could be doing all of the end game stuff with the world tree and the spear from the book and just moving it up before the midpoint. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the, the book is like very influenced by the 19, you know, like 50s, 60s and 70s Cold War mentality of like how America propagates warfare, because at that point, like everybody's kind of looking at like the NSA, the CIA, that's where the X-Files comes from, right? They're like, why do you still exist? We don't like there is no more Cold War. What do we need a secret state for? What are you hiding from us about us? Like, that's where all of the paranoia and stuff in the book comes from, all of the men in black type characters. Um, but none of that is relevant now. Like, in a post 9 11 America, we're much more aggressive and um, we've gone to war, like, on other continents and stuff since then. I think that the show is trying to represent that in a way that the book just fundamentally was not able to because it was so fixated on the Cold War style fighting. That's my read on it anyway. Mr. World even says at some point like, What the F was that? Runes have been etched. 
things are happening ahead of schedule. And I was like, oh, man, you're like reading my mind. Oh, my God. That's hilariously metatextual. I think, yeah, he's definitely like they're the writers are speaking directly to the fans of the book and like, huh, like what is going on? Earlier, you were talking about how Anansi is an anachronism in the burlesque show. And I loved how he says, like, Donar's moose knocker brings all the boys to the yard. Yeah, (laughs) it made me laugh. It's so good that he's, like, talking over that nobody gets that reference except for us, the audience. Yeah. It's good. But he doesn't care. He's just trying to entertain himself. Yeah, it's so good. I love it. So one other thing I wanted to talk about... um, And we kind of already mentioned this a little bit earlier, um, but it seems like uh, specific pieces of music and musical artists are playing a really central role in this episode in a way that they don't normally in most of the episodes. Um, So there's that Brother Can You Spare Me a Dime song um, that Wednesday sings at the end. And then, of course, like Lou Reed's jacket plays an important role in the plot. and we get like musical clips of Lou Reed played at a couple places in the episodes, which I like wonder how much those music royalties cost them. Oh, that's true. Um, and actually part of me wonders if like they chose the object based on which music royalties they could get. <laughs> I know that uh, Neil Gaiman is a Velvet Underground fan. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess I was curious like what... Uh, background you had in Lou Reed because like I know the name but I have basically no familiarity with his music so like I mentioned Neil Gaiman is a fan of him which is really how I discovered the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed Um, if you remember like way back in the first episode when they're in the crocodile bar um, there's a jukebox and in the book it plays a Lou Reed song Uh, or a Velvet Underground song, rather. It's, like, about worshipping the sun, uh, and then you get the sun coin in that scene. Yeah, so, like, I appreciate that they're using an artist that is also in the book. Like, to me, that's, like, an Easter egg. Oh, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense, then. (laughs) Yeah. I think that for, like, the average music listener, like, Lou Reed is not doing much, but it seems like rock and roll artists who were his contemporaries thought that he was a genius. Was it like his composition or his performance or like his his like melody writing or lyric writing? Like what? Yeah, it was like all of it. And like okay. his in his style too. He had like this whole thing where like when he would talk to the media, he would he would never like explain himself or explain what anything means he was like very antagonistic um he had like this whole bad boy thing going on but he also had this whole kind of queer thing going on where he would you know he would write about like being a transvestite or like making out with uh, another guy he was really hard to work with it was you know the main thing that you would hear about him he had like addiction problems like a total rock star kind of a thing he was too weird and edgy to be mainstream but he was like a huge influence on everybody else so it was kind of like the rock stars that were getting all the fame and attention and worship were worshiping him so he's like the god behind the gods almost kind of Ooh, i like that yeah an american god so it's cool that like his jacket is like 
this holy artifact, kind of. In, mm-hmm. I think it's cool. Anyway. But it also explains why it's only worth $7,500. <laughs> right. But so holy. You know, if it was like Mick Jagger's jacket or whatever. Exactly. That's a really good example. Speaking of Easter eggs, uh, as a big Ian McShane fan, in this episode, when he's running the burlesque, they call him Al. Uh, and his name in the show Deadwood is Al Swearingen. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, nice. There's also a mini series that Ian McShane is in called The Pillars of Heaven, which is also an adaptation of a novel. Uh, it takes place in like medieval England and it's about building a church. Ian McShane plays the bad guy of the whole thing who is a bishop, um, an evil bishop. And so as soon as I saw him in the bishop outfit, I was like, oh, he looks just like the bad guy from the Pillars of Heaven. All right. So let's wrap up with lowlights and highlights. Uh, What was your least favorite part? So I talked about how the bishop game is uh, a part of the book in that same conversation. They talk about a heist that I actually think is more fun than the bishop game called the fiddle game. Uh, I won't explain what the fiddle game is. Maybe they'll do it one day. But way back when we were talking about names for this show, uh, the fiddle game was one of my favorites to call the show. It's like a deep cut. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, just like the bishop game, it's a two-man con. So I was like, that kind of makes sense for a, for a podcast, right? There's two of us. Oh, I see. Yeah. It didn't even get referenced in this episode. I see. So you, like, regardless of what con they ended up doing, you just wanted, like, some sort of reference to it. Yeah, I wanted the fiddle game. But that's okay that it's not there. It's just, I just missed it. I missed what didn't happen. What about you? Like I said at the top, I'm just not that into musical numbers in general. Um, And, like, I get that it was necessary for this episode. Like, I think it would have felt cheap and empty if they ran a burlesque call and there were no burlesque numbers. Um, <laughs> and I and I do think that they were well done, but I was also, like, kind of zoning out after, like, the first minute or two of each of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like, they weren't bad at all. They just, like, were, I think, my least favorite part of the episode. So what was your favorite part? Definitely the whole Bishop game scene is, like, the high point of the episode for me. And I think that that whole scene just falls apart without the store clerk being as perfect as he is. Like he's just the actor's comedic timing and like his reactions to everything. And I don't know, that guy is like on an actor level. I feel like he's juggling a lot of stuff. He he goes from like comic to serious to like. He's astonished. He's he, he's running the whole gamut of emotions, <laughs> and it's so good. It feels like Ian McShane and Ricky Whittle are running that scene, but I feel like without that guy doing the exact thing that he's doing, like nothing works. So that guy was like the MVP of the episode in my book. What about you? Oh, I completely agree. Uh, I was definitely going to pick that guy uh, as my favorite part of the show. Um, but just so I have something else to say, uh, I thought a lot of the guest stars on this episode were really great. So in addition to, uh, Evan Stern, who plays the clerk, Carl, um, I thought the actress who played Columbia was really great, uh, who's Laura Bell Bundy, and Sindri the Dwarf, who's played by 
Clark Middleton. Um, I thought they were all fantastic um, and really made the episode uh, fun to watch. So before we sign off, um, I also just want to mention some feedback that we got from a listener who also gave us a lot of great commentary last season. Um, his name is H. Khan, and he's uh, at Spawnavaz on Twitter. And so he was responding um, to some of the things that I said about Black pain and the representations of Black pain in uh, TV and movies, and specifically that Jezebel article um, about being tired of uh, slave movies. Uh, and he really pushed back on that narrative and I think made a pretty compelling argument that actually we don't have enough slave movies. Um, and so, you know, this episode's running pretty long. We don't really have the time to uh, give his comments justice right now. But we do plan on having like a full length just mailbag episode um, in which we're, we're going to give you his comments in full and then kind of respond to that a little bit. Um, and so if you also have any other comments um, that you'd like to share with us, um, if you're a huge Lou Reed fan, uh, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> anyway, so stay tuned for that uh, and look forward to getting that in your feeds. So I think with that announcement, that's all we've got for this episode. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. And you can come join us each Sunday night at uh, 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time uh, to live tweet the newest episode with us, uh, hashtag Shamblers. Uh, and you can do that by following the show on Twitter at ShadowShambler. And you can visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Join us next week for season two, episode seven, The Treasure of the Sun. And don't forget to tell your friends about us and to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's the podcasting way of life we're concerned about, and we believe you have the power to save it. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license. <laughs> Once I built a wa- a whale load. <laughs> love, true love. True marriage is what brings us here today. <laughs> Uh, red leather, That's yellow cool. leather, red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> Sorry. Once I built a railroad, I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a rail, wow, railroad really is a hard word to say. That's tough. Okay. Wednesday and Shadow deliver the jacket to Vallen. <laughs> right. That's what they do. Oh, oh I guess I did kind of ahead, relate it to the relentless pursuit of money, to the relentless pursuit of worship. No, it's great. Oh. I love that. Oh, hey. So smart. <laughs> smart stuff. So, stuff so <laughs> smart I forgot about it. <laughs> um, the cultural reality of the people who practice a religion. Mojo, you have to get out of this room. Um <laughs>